0: Soden. One of the clearest lessons I've learned from my years of teaching about religion and discussing religion is that religion is everywhere. Religion inspires the decisions people make on a day-to-day basis in their personal and professional lives. The crossover of religion into secular society is interesting, and my interest was piqued recently when I saw the title of a new book from NYU Press, Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store. By Dr. Nicole Kirk. John Wanamaker was an iconic businessman in Philadelphia who lived from 1838 to 1922. He founded the Wanamaker's department store in 1876 and was crucial in changing how Americans shop, celebrate, and congregate. He also deeply believed his wealth was blessed by God and that he had a duty to offer moral guidance to Philadelphia at a time when people believed Protestant Christianity's influence in the United States was in decline. If you're going to Philadelphia, the scenes we describe can largely still be seen. The Wanamaker Building, home to the iconic department store's heyday, is in Philadelphia, with its trademark Wanamaker organ, the 2,500-pound bronze eagle sculpture, and 12-story Grand Court Atrium. The building received a National Historic Landmark distinction in 1978, and is currently the home of Macy's. I had a wonderful conversation with Nicole Kirk about the life, context, business, and religion depicted in Wanamaker's Temple. The business of religion in an iconic department store, out now from NYU Press. Dr. Nicole Kirk is a historian of American religious history, associate professor, in the Frank and Alice Schulman Chair of Unitarian Universalist History at Meadville Lombard Theological School in Chicago, Illinois. She joined the faculty at Meadville Lombard in 2012 after earning her Ph.D. in American Religious History at Princeton Theological Seminary. As always, if you like this show, please consider rating it where you get podcasts, you can write to me at classicalideas at outlook.com. Find me on Twitter at classical underscore ideas or on Facebook at facebook.com slash classical ideas podcast. I really enjoyed Wanamaker's Temple, which is a piece of overlooked history I never would have learned about if I didn't do this show. Please enjoy my conversation with Dr. Nicole Kirk. Music. Nicole Kirk. Thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas.
1: Thank you. I'm delighted to be here.
0: Can you just take a moment and sort of introduce yourself, what you do, and where you are in the world for the listeners?
1: Thanks, Uh, Greg. I am the Frank and Alice Schulman Professor of Unitarian Universalist History at a seminary here in Chicago, Meadville Lombard Theological School. Uh, We're celebrating our 175th anniversary, and we're a seminary that primarily trains religious leaders for Unitarian Universalism, uh, faith tradition, but also other faith traditions.
0: Wonderful. One of my favorite conversations I ever had for this show was with a Unitarian Universalist uh, minister, and it was delightful. So that's great to hear. So we're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff today. You have a new book out that we're going to talk about, but I'm kind of interested a little bit in guest history whenever we start conversations. How did you come to be interested in the academic study of religion? Like, what are some crucial moments in your educational journey?
1: I attended a small liberal arts college, Westminster College in Fulton, Missouri, and they had uh, strong humanities, you know, as a liberal Arts College would, uh, strong humanities um, professors, and I was interested in history, I was interested in English, I was interested in political science. In fact, I tried on all those majors, but it was finally in a moment when I had a class uh, at that time called World Religions, Uh, with a professor, Bill Young, and I realized that the study of religion, religious studies, brought in political science, history, uh, sacred text, and writing, and I thought this is a way to study parts of all of those uh, uh, academic disciplines, but also how it really shapes people's lives and how they live in the world.
0: Wonderful. I had an experience similar to that just down the road in Mizzou where I had Philip Clark, who is like a, an East Asian and Chinese um, scholarship religious studies professor. And it was brilliant. I totally understand where you're coming from as far as that being a transformative educational moment because you see religion is everywhere around you. You know what I mean? Yes. It's in everything in society. Awesome. Okay. So where did you go to after that undergrad program that led to where you are now?
1: Uh, Well, I spent uh, three, well, four years at Westminster, and then I went over to Vanderbilt for Master Divinity. And uh, over time, uh, it took a while before I came back for the PhD, and I did that at Princeton Theological Seminary. That religious
0: history that you got really into led to this new book that I've just read from you that I absolutely love. Wanamaker's Temple, The Business of Religion in an Iconic Department Store. And when I saw this title in the New York University Press Catalog, I was really, really intrigued because tying together business and religion is something that fascinates me. So let's talk about the bare bones. When did you first learn about John Wanamaker?
1: Uh, It was my first year of my PhD. I was in a survey course on American religious history, and we read consumer rights by lee eric schmidt who happened to be over at the university and i was fascinated about the development of american holidays and how uh, religion uh, both shaped the holidays but also some of the holiday traditions uh, were changing religion and one of the examples he frequently came back to was uh, american department stores and in particular. John Wanamaker's uh, department store in Philadelphia, although he also had a New York branch, uh, in part because the archive is so rich for for Wanamaker. And I was completely, completely drawn in and discovered that there had been some other writings uh, about Wanamaker, Land of Desire by William Leach, and that, in fact, he shows up in uh, many historians' uh, discussions of business and religion or commerce and religion, uh, he is uh, the darling of many material culturalists uh, mm-hmm. because, again, the archive is so rich. And I discovered that no one had really spent time doing a lengthy discussion about th- his blending of business and religion. And so I saw this opening and I went to the archives as my first year, my Ph.D., PhD and I discovered uh, this treasure trove of Information. He's not terribly self-reflective uh, uh, in the ways that historians, you know, hope for. Um, but there was still so much there to to work with and to learn about uh, that is poured into this book.
0: You must have felt so lucky as a first-year Ph.D. student to stumble across what would eventually become like this vast research possibility.
1: Yes. I, I mean, how many folks necessarily land on their dissertation topic that later becomes uh, edited and refined book for publication their first year? And so I but it's, so in this way, I've spent a long time with John Wanamaker.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I'd imagine you might even be uh, looking forward to moving on to other projects at this point as well. So yes. um, so Wanamaker lives from 1838 to 1922. And in the book, you write, this is a quote, Between 1840 and 1890, 7.5 million Irish and German people poured into American cities. Most of these immigrants were Catholic or Jewish, upsetting the Protestant majority at a moment when Protestants already felt vulnerable. So can you tell us a little bit about the context of Protestant panic in which Wanamaker arose as a public figure?
1: A lot of this is due to the changes in the movement of populations in the United States, the the, the still forming United States, uh, and how cities and the urban milieu, the urban environment – is uh, changing where people live. So many people, especially young men, are leaving uh, their small rural um, villages and towns, and they are coming to these large cities. So family structures, as they know it, uh, are breaking down. Uh, Church circles, as people understand their relationships, are breaking down. And there's this influx of young men looking for work without the Ties, and one could even say the surveillance mm. of church and home and family, and so they can get into trouble rather quickly. Uh, and so people are seeing this um, as the cities are growing, even the church, because American cities, uh, as they were growing, they in many ways were these small towns, much like Chicago and New York City, we still talk about the neighborhoods, mm-hmm. uh, or even Philadelphia. Uh, They were very much those those neighborhoods uh, were cohesive, uh, almost like little villages in themselves, much more than they are today. And so those were breaking down because it was growing so fast and new groups of people would come in and destabilize. Uh, groups uh, that had been populating one area that was forming a neighborhood. So between that and then uh, again this, this outside migration and uh, in particular Judaism and, and, and especially Catholicism new ways of work life uh, every, people are feeling that life as they know it is coming apart at the seams and they're particularly worried about the morality Um, moral fabric of society the moral fabric of this uh, nation and uh, as other scholars have shown and and this is certainly part of my work is that they believe if the the country is is not having this moral stability that overall this united states is having uh, would have trouble continuing as it being a successful growing country Uh, so they're worried about it for their salvation personal salvation. They're worried about it for their communal community salvation. They're worried about the United States. After, actually, uh, Catherine Jin Lum has done a lot of work uh, about this in her book "Damned Nation," uh, looking about the history of, of hell and damnation in America. Yeah, and that's a part of that story.
0: So. How does Wanamaker fit in? I'm curious what motivates him to get into the values and morals business through retail. So as he's building this business empire, what specifically does Wanamaker see as like the major struggle of American society?
1: Well, he was torn from the very beginning between ministry and being a merchant. Mm-hmm. And ministry, one of the biggest barriers was health. Uh, he had a rather delicate disposition, which is uh, almost amusing from our point of view, because the man lived into his 80s and outlived most of his family. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and But at the same time, he would have these horrible colds every year and this lung condition. And his lungs were damaged somewhat during uh, his uh, work in early work in, in retail, there was poor ventilation and things like that. And so people said the demands of ministry, which uh, I train ministers, I'm a professor at a seminary. Uh, I mean, it's true, ministry is a very demanding position. And so he worried about this. At the same time, his desire to be a merchant was tainted by the fact that many people uh, had a poor view of uh, retail and that it was a illicit business almost. Uh, now, this is something that ebbs and flows uh, in the history of the United States and also the American colonies. Uh, there's times when it's viewed more positive. There's times when uh, people are preaching against it in the pulpits. And certainly in this um, second half of the 19th century, it is it is an issue. And so he's hearing that critique. He's worried about that. Uh, Dwight L. Moody, whom he supports in his both ministry and seminary and also his revivals, is uh, using the techniques of business to be so successful in his revivals and at the same time judges maker, and others who are uh, in retail because it's not as good as, as perhaps other businesses so he was torn.
0: Yeah, the idea of business and religion is really interesting, and there's a lot of modern critiques about what religion has become that might be at odds with what we see as the purpose of business. So I want to talk about the two words that are in your subtitle, business and religion, which is in the title of the book. So these two words seem to be somewhat at odds until Wanamaker decides to associate them Is that accurate? Was he like a pioneer in combining business and religion in American life?
1: No. Okay. Uh, This has been a trend uh, throughout American religious history, and it's been done different ways uh, by folks. In One way of looking at Wanamaker's breakthroughs is that he was pretty open about it. Uh, He was, uh, despite... The pushback and people saying that, that that these don't mix and they make fun of him, uh, and 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 joke about him being pious John. This especially when he uh, exposed himself in uh, to this kind of uh, newspapers and cartoons when he got into politics. So he became this target. Uh, but you can look. And this is not the the simple argument of the Puritans and capitalism. It certainly ebbed and flowed. But Mark Valeri, in his book, um, Heavenly Merchandise, uh, looks at uh, how this is working in the the 1700s in Boston with merchants and ministers. So, and you can even see it today, although much more subtle. uh, And and a lot of people will look to the examples of Chick-fil-A or Interstate Battery, uh, or even the tension and... uh, arguments around hobby lobby and and how business and religion is being mixed in in that context, even Walmart. Uh, but Wanamaker is very this is this is who he is and he's pretty upfront about it. but he's also everything he's doing is is often seen through this lens. So when he talks about some of the things that he's saying is best practices, it's related to how he thinks about morality, which is, shaped and framed by his Protestant religious sensibilities and commitments.
0: Gotcha. So in the book, you say that Wanamaker believes that God has blessed his wealth.
1: Yes. How
0: does he make sense of that? Like, how does he explain that and justify that to his critics?
1: You know, and this is again, where he's not as self-reflective as one would like uh, from what, I can find found in his his writings is that he he wasn't apologetic about it. <laughs> he truly believed this, and he would Russell Conwell. Although Baptist and Wanamaker uh, was Presbyterian, they were great friends. Russell Conwell. Uh, many people point to, especially with his famous lecture that he gave on the Chautauqua Circuit, Acres of Diamonds. Uh, as one of the originators uh, of the pro- uh, prosperity gospel, the gospel of wealth, uh, a version of this, of course, you know, Carnegie, uh, Andrew Carnegie's using the the term gospel of wealth. He he believes that it's, that you can if you are dedicating yourself and living a good life, you will be blessed by success. And then if you take that success and in this case, great wealth, tremendous wealth, and that you give back to society and you do it in moral and good ways, uh, that, uh, and and take care of that money, that that money is going to ends to support the, the making of the kingdom of God, then you'll be further blessed. It's kind of this circular prosperity gospel. And so he didn't, really struggle with it, question it. This was just how he viewed and lived in the world. Interesting.
0: So, and I know that he takes this into the training of his staff, like he incorporated morals into his staff training for the people that worked in his store. So when training staff, what did Wanamaker expect of his staff that is like religious in nature?
1: Well, and I mean, it's it's subtle in some ways looking at this. Uh, if you take it... it at face value, in one way is you you say, "Oh, well, he's just uh, training them how to to dress and how to to move and do their jobs." Uh, but there's this strong thread of morality, and uh, that morality and those ideas of morals are Christian morals for him. And so, and it's very paternalistic. Uh, at the same time, people talked about how much he would do for them and finding memories of children who grew up in the school, uh, in the store school. So I should back up and say he was very concerned about his young work- workers, his youngest workers. And so he started a school and then a summer camp to uh, continue their education, even though they had to work to help support their families. And And he was sent out to work rather early uh, as an errand boy and then later found his way into retail and so he was concerned about people's lack of education, but also uh, he wanted to teach them business. So it was helping to perpetuate his business because he would train folks who would spend their entire career with him. But also if they went out into the world, he hoped to teach them a Christian idea of business, uh, what he called the golden rule of business, and that that would infuse retail and and make it over into a, a Christian practice a, a christian money-making enterprise
0: did Wanamaker do a good job of lifting up and training all of his employees
1: no uh first of all when he was starting out he started just with his youngest uh, uh young men and then the young women uh started agitating and saying we would like these uh programs they also had the older workers uh but when I'm talking about these workers, these are his uh, workers with white identities. And his African-American workers did have access to some education and music programs, but they were never at the same level uh, as his uh, workers uh, who were white. And the African-American workers, there was always a smaller number, it was about 300, although some stores uh, in the racism would even hire African-Americans Uh, But they were kept in uh, service roles, elevator operators, um, serving food in some of the restaurants behind the scenes. And at the same time, this is an interesting, uh, I mean, certainly a man of his time. And so Wanamaker really believed that people, if they worked hard enough and they applied themselves Uh, that you can move your way up, or at least that's what he liked to say. He would say this to African-American audiences. He was invited by Booker T. Washington to speak uh, to an African-American businessman's audience, and he would say this over and over, that people, uh, and uh, all people, and so he's saying to my African-American workers, they can move their way up, and yet none of them are promoted. And in fact, later research, after Wanamaker, uh, some of the the, the work around social justice and the NAACP discovered that the department stores along Market Street in Philadelphia had agreement not to hire any sales clerks uh, who were African-America, African-American, and that was uh, challenged and finally broken through in the 40s and, and early 50s.
0: Gotcha. So Wanamaker has what you write in the book as being his religious philosophy of material wealth. And so today... You know, I look around and I see that being like a billionaire or a millionaire or very wealthy and being Christian aren't really seen as being diametrically opposed to each other. So is this like is this period of Wanamaker like a crucial piece of American history that helps explain like our current environment?
1: It certainly helps us understand it better, I think. Uh, the dynamic dance of religion and business uh, and in this case, uh, and then we, you know, the Rockefeller and uh, Carnegie, and certainly how they are understanding the tremendous wealth that they are accumulating and what should be done with it. And in those cases, though, it's very different. So they say, we must make society better, we must support. And so Carnegie's building all these libraries, uh, Rockefeller's giving back. Um, education and all kinds of uh, uh, ways in different communities. And so it it helps us uh, see this today. uh, It's some of the historical roots, but also some of the differences and some big changes in that relationship between religion and business. Uh, But it's, it's, it's always been there. It's just how that dance plays out uh, has changed.
0: Excellent. So in the book, you write, um, is a quote again, his innovative efforts are a part of a long line of Protestant efforts to blend religion and business efforts that expanded in the 20th century and continue today, which you just sort of discussed. Um, so what explicitly can we see today as like a byproduct of Wanamaker? Like, do you see anything in Chicago where you live or like cities around the country where we can confidently say like, without John Wanamaker, XYZ might not exist quite in that way
1: in terms of business or retail practice or religion Uh, either Mm. well in history and there's always that desire to say here's the the one reason or here's the one person sure Uh, but it, it is Never, just one person. It's it's a group of people and these these dynamic forces. So Wanamaker uh, certainly was one of the leaders who helped revolutionize retail. So the retail practices that we assume that are a part of our everyday lives are partly the product of Wanamaker and other leaders who move American retail away from haggling for prices to one price tag for all people uh, who invite browsing. And this is of course also related to the uh, great exhibitions, uh, the world's fairs and where you can't buy anything. All that's about browsing. And so they bring that into retail where you can buy almost everything Mm -hmm. and you can also look. Uh, But before uh, that became a regular retail convention, uh, you had to enter a store and know that you were going to buy. Uh, Wanamaker in terms of religion, uh, again, here is a leader, and he's he's not just a member of a church, he starts a church. He starts it through a Sunday school mission. He very much believes uh, in, in Protestant Christianity, a Presbyterian version, uh, with a with a revivalistic thread, and he starts his Sunday school and then starts this mega church. Uh, of the day, I mean thousands of members, thousands in the Sunday school, but it's also an institutional church that provides community services uh, to the, the wider community.
0: And he tells his friends, I love this quote, my stores will be a pulpit for me. And Wanamaker seems to turn his store into like a version of like what you just said, like a religious revival and a Christian mission in the heart of urban America. So um, how does he use like the physical building in sort of like a religious way because he has these like displays and he does all kinds of events. So what's going on that's like inside his store. That's like religiously inspired or religious in nature.
1: Indeed. So. And it, you know, that quote to the store, the store will be my pulpit. Uh, I love that quote. He said it a couple of times different ways. And actually in his letters, when people are writing critiques, Uh, he, that's one of the few times he is self-reflective that we have. And he, this is going back to your earlier question before I talk about the building and he wasn't defensive. He would just say, why is this a problem? Mm. I I see that that religion and business belong together and that my business supports my religion and my religion supports my business. What's what's the the conflict here Uh, in terms of the building? uh, He had several buildings. Uh, He had several store locations in Philadelphia. It wasn't until 1875, 1876 when he opened an annex uh, that later became the location of, of the, the, the major department store, what became the department store. And it was a little bit farther than the regular retail track. And he had bought an old train depot. And so you can imagine the glass train shed. Oh, um, yeah. This is where, so lights coming in. Love and that. Is, acreage, almost, uh, (laughs) of merchandise, right? Yeah. And so that's the original building, and he had gone to the 1893 uh, World's Fair in Chicago, the Columbian Exposition, and he had visited Marshall Fields, a new department store building that was being put up in three phases by the architect Daniel Burnham, and so Wanamaker went with Daniel Burnham. Now, what's interesting about the Burnham connection is Daniel Burnham and others were also part of the City Beautiful movement, that believed that some of the plight of urban living could be uh, corrected or shaped or changed by good architecture and parks and open, beautiful spaces, and that these spaces would inspire people to act in better uh, more cordial and uh, even more moral ways. And so you have this architect who's already a part of this movement in Shaping American Urban Contexts, who is building these department stores? Awesome. Or, or designing them. So, yeah.
0: That's really cool. And, like, so earlier, we mentioned that Protestant influence in society was kind of like waning, and then a lot of people were kind of concerned about this decline in influence and what they saw as an increase in amorality or immorality in the cities. And how does Wanamaker help stave off protestant power decline does he help um reverse any of this decline that he is so worried about like does he feel successful
1: well and and that's what i argue in the book it's actually not a decline it's a transformation so okay. the power is not necessarily declining it is changing in its expression it's changing in how it's being funneled and what is perceived to be decline is creating this moment of, of uh, creative response in uh, creativity. And so people are thinking of new ways to bring religion into people's uh, lives. And so all these moral reform movements are developing. You have the young men's Christians association, the YMCA, et cetera. And, and he's, Also in his building, thinking that this can be a part, one of the many tools, as well as his church, as well as his Sunday school, as well as his efforts for the YMCA, that his department store building is just as much a tool for this helping society uh, come back in in the the Protestant fold.
0: Awesome. About half hour ago, I... I mentioned some statistics about immigration yes. that were happening during Wanamaker's life. Um, does Wanamaker have any role in bridge building or uh, bridging any divides between Protestants and the large influx of Catholic immigrants to arrive dur- in the USA during his lifespan? Does he have any like bridge building that he is doing at this time? Yeah,
1: you know, that's a great question. And it was something I was really interested in discovering because at many of these citywide events that were centered on his store, whether it was the dedication of the building in 1911 or the various parades, uh, and and if there wasn't something to celebrate, Wanamaker and his team would often develop something to celebrate. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so you would have his employees marching in their cadet uniforms as a part of the school with this military framework. Uh, with a military band and he would invite the cardinal and he would invite uh, a local rabbi. And many times it would be the same uh, religious leaders from these various groups. How far those relationships went, uh, I had trouble teasing out. And so it still remains a question for me. So he definitely had relationships uh, with Catholic leaders and Jewish leaders And I have him writing letters also to to Phoebe Palmer and other religious leaders of the time who don't even live in in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. So he was a connector and a networker. uh, But at times it's difficult to see how deep those relationships go. Now, Dwight L. Moody, they're very close. Russell Conwell, there's definite evidence of a deep relationship. Uh, With these other uh, religious leaders, it's a little bit difficult. But I know I was able to find some places where I think there was some influence on what he did for his community. So there was a a penny savings bank that was developed by some of the Catholic leaders in Philadelphia. And soon after, then he started his. So to to help people, uh, much like we talk about today, where folks don't have access to banking. And so that causes problems. Uh, in in their movement in the world and being able to buy things, uh, so Wanamaker is, is addressing the, a similar issue of his time when people are have no place to to save their money or or secure it.
0: Excellent. Earlier, you mentioned some modern companies: Hobby Lobby, Chick Fil A. If I were to apply for a job at either of these companies today, it's well documented like what the beliefs that are guiding the organizations are like because I can go and find those in any major news publication. Were Wanamaker employees aware of how seriously he took his religious practices or were they just in there like buying stuff um, because that's what people do?
1: I think it's the both and. Um, It just depends how much paying attention. If you're part of his school programs, you're having a moral well check uh, visit to your home and your parents are being interviewed and they're being advised on how to to raise you properly. When you go to the summer camp, uh, you're having religious services, but I mean that's also part of the time, and so mm-hmm. that wouldn't be necessarily extraordinary. You would almost expect it. At the same time, the radio station that he opened and was broadcast from the top of his store would broadcast the sermons from his church. And when he initiated, when that was the opening day of that radio uh, station, uh, he had the minister from his church come and and do opening words and do a prayer. Uh, So it's it's both something folks may not notice because it was so much a part of the soup they were swimming in. And at the same time, uh, there were certainly elements where it might stand out. So you go to this art gallery that's inside the store and there's many uh, religious pictures, although... Here's a Protestant who collects religious images of that are, are shaped by the Catholic milieu uh, and often by Catholic artists. And so that's also an interesting element.
0: Gotcha. Uh, something that I really liked in the book is when you wrote about how some shoppers have like religious experiences in the store. Um, Did the shoppers get on board with the shopping as a moral endeavor idea that Wanamaker had? Um, What did they believe they were benefiting morally by shopping? Tell me about the shoppers.
1: Yeah, that's a a great question as well. I didn't spend as much time on the reception history, um, but I did discover these moments uh, during this exact time of year, uh, Lent. Uh, leading up, the 40 days leading up to Easter, this is after actually John Wanamaker's death. His son Rodman took these two massive paintings by uh, Mihai uh this Hungarian artist that Wanamaker had developed this relationship with. These were uh, his two paintings, Christ Before Pilate and Christ at Calvary or Christ at, at uh, Golgotha. These two paintings were world famous. Some people uh, talked about it being perhaps the most famous paintings, uh, at the time. And during John Wanamaker's lifetime, he kept them in a particular special gallery and that they were at, uh, uh floor level. Uh, so y- it was almost as if you could walk into the paintings and because there's such the, the size and the scale of the paintings, uh, it really does feel like you can walk into them because I've been able to see them. I traveled to, to uh, Hungary last year and found where they were and went to visit them and spent, uh, I was very lucky there was no one in the gallery and there was a third painting. It was part of actually a trilogy, but Wanamaker had two these two paintings and it, it was an experience to just study the color and the movement and feel like I could walk right into the scene about Jesus and Pontius Pilate I could walk into the scene of Jesus hanging on the cross and the and the, the the two thieves on either side and looking at the crowd and the various emotions that are expressed, everything from outrage um, to to weeping, uh, and everything in between. And so these paintings, after John's death, his son Rodman put them inside the grand court, the central space with an organ, so this is the part where it can feel like a church. Uh, this huge organ that's placed uh, up on the the balcony in a placement where many churches at that time have their grand organs with all the, the pipe facade. And these two paintings, with an explanation down below, people would come, and some people would come every year just to see these paintings, and they would talk about their spiritual experiences. So I think some shoppers, it was oh, look at those paintings. I'm here to go get that Easter bonnet. Yeah, And other people were, whoa, Jesus is here. And look at that painting and connecting it to, to scripture.
0: Oh, my goodness. Okay, so the research process for the book, it sounds like you really had a ton of fun. So you said that the so these paintings are in Hungary now? Mm-hmm. Why, why are they in Hungary? Why did they wind up there?
1: Uh, because they... Were purchased by uh, some collectors and brought back, and and th- actually, they two of them are owned by the same person, I believe, and a third uh, by another entity, and they've decided to bring them together for a while.
0: What other Wanamaker historical sites did you visit in the research process?
1: Well, I spent a lot of time in Philly uh, because the building is still there, the Wanamaker building. Uh, it's. The same on the exterior in many ways. Um, Inside, the main department store is then shrunk down to the grand court and and some about seven or so floors in the central part of the building uh, with entrances to a couple of the streets but in the old days it encompassed the entire building Mm -hmm. Um, the store but also the storage rooms and there was a subway station um, in the basement Uh, Macy's has the uh, core part of the store and then it's offices and I've had friends this has been the great thing about doing a book uh, like Wanamakers you run into people who talk about grandparents growing up in the school and being a Wanamaker cadet Oh wow! you have people talking about their mom or dad having an entire career there You have people remembering uh, and sharing those. I get emails about once every couple of weeks that I enjoy where people talk about going there for Christmas and the displays and Easter and uh, what that was like. And and so I have also heard stories about people who have offices who have the glass window sharing the grand court and the, the grand organ is still played in in the, the Wanamaker building. And there are friends of the Wanamaker organ who have helped with Macy's to restore it and to maintain it. And they still have a store organist. And so people in their office doing their work, some uh, several times a day on a schedule can hear the the great organ play.
0: I mean, this is one of the biggest organs in the world, isn't it?
1: Yes. And I mean, like anything uh, there's that you have to say it right, but I believe it is the largest fully functioning organ in the world. Fully functioning being the the keywords there.
0: Unbelievable. Um, in the book, you have you talk a lot about Wanamaker's house, especially in the conclusion. Did you go to the remains of the Wanamaker house, which burned down in the seventies? Was rebuilt as like a gigantic apartment building now.
1: Well, and there's I mean there's several homes uh, they were they were extremely wealthy, and so there's the Lindenhurst that burned, and I tell that story uh, about his art collection. There was his son's summer homes, which he named the sports club uh, employee groups. After his son's summer homes, he had his in-town home, but it looks like he had a couple. So I didn't. I, I drove by uh, the the Walnut Street edifice. But there's not much uh really there I just I spent most of my time in the Wanamaker building because I really wanted to experience the feel uh, of that space uh although it has changed uh what the air feels like, what the presence of the organ when you're in another part of the building and it starts playing and how it draws you into the grand court how it is a surprise to walk into this atrium space that is is uh enormous and seven stories tall and beautiful. And then this golden organ and how that organ fills the space. And then imagining both through the pictures and the archives uh, and then my mind's eye, what it would look like at Christmas when he made it into a Gothic cathedral with his uh, artistic team of employees.
0: Unbelievable. Philadelphia is really not even that far away from me. So I live in New York and so I can drive just across the state and over the summer, I actually drove right through Philadelphia on my way to a town in Delaware. And so it's really feasible that I will be going through Philadelphia again in the, in the near future. And I will be doing this experience for myself. Now that I've read this book, it's going to be like, added to my list of things I need to do. Um, did you have any like specific discoveries that made you, as like a historian of this topic, just freak out with glee and like, the joy of discovery?
1: Oh, several, uh, where uh, for a long time, I felt like he was talking about a form of the uh, prosperity gospel, and I felt like he sounded a lot like what Russell Conwell preached, but I couldn't find a connection between them initially. Uh, just because I hadn't gotten to that point in the archives, and when I found that they had a relationship, and it was it looked like a very close and deep relationship, uh, that was like this aha moment. I think I I think I may have almost shouted the Glee in the archive. There was a couple of times like whoa, oh! uh, and, and again just wow. And then looking at the the images and the pictures and uh and just when like any historian you have these questions and uh another moment was this tension between his african-american workers and him saying people could move up i couldn't find any evidence and so i thought you know i should go to historic black newspapers and so i went to the chicago defender and that's where i found Uh, A gentleman uh, by the last name of Scroggins where he talked about how he had been an elevator operator for 50 years or so and had never been able to move up. And he actually had a business degree. He had all these amazing experiences. He was a leader in the African-American YMCA movement. And – the Chicago Defender is criticizing Wantamakers and other places like it, where yeah, you say people can move up and you say it's open to African Americans, but it's it's not, and and here's the evidence and the proof, and so that was a very sad moment, aha, because uh, I knew it, and I also uh, in the discussion nowadays, right now around blackface, uh, Wantamakers and. Many, if not most, department stores of the day among the white employees had minstrel teams who would put on blackface. And this was a part of their solidifying their position uh, and the the employee ranks that uh, that they would in this racist motifs and, and racist entertainment uh, differentiate themselves from these other employees. And again, trying to, to block the advancement of African-Americans working in the store.
0: Well, Nicole Kirk, I'm absolutely delighted to talk to you today about your book, about the research process, about um, all of this history, about tying business and religion together. And I just think that this is an interesting topic that, you know, doesn't get as much attention in society as it could. So I appreciate you and your efforts as far as putting this book together. Do you have any like future projects you're working on or can you tell people where they can find you if they want to follow you and your work?
1: Oh, certainly. I'm on Twitter. Uh, I have to look it up.
0: <laughs> is it is it Prof in Chicago?
1: It is. It's Prof in Chicago. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Uh, yes, uh, I have a website NicoleKirk.com. and my next work. I, I'm gonna. I continue. I'm gonna continue working on religion and business and technology. That's a deep interest of mine. Uh, also where there's elements of material culture, so like the Wanamaker Building. Yeah. Uh, so my next book is going to be looking at the intersections of railroads and American religion.
0: Well, I will be delighted to have you back on the show to talk about that next book. Um, thank you so much for coming on Classical Ideas. This has been a real pleasure.
1: Thank you. Classical
0: Ideas is produced by me, Greg Soden. Music on Classical Ideas is composed and performed by Derek Strybig. You can find his music at www.wearewarmmusic.com. If you like this show, please rate it on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can email me at, classicalideas at outlook.com. Or find me on Patreon at patreon.com slash classicalideaspodcast.